greet you all in the precious name of Jesus. It's certainly a privilege to greet you in his name and to stand in his shadow here as I share with you this morning. I suppose probably many of you preach regularly and I suspect probably never have you preached a message with this title. And I probably should have been more suspicious when I got the email from Paul. Uh, he sent an email asking if I would consider a message at the winter meetings. That's all it said. And immediately my flags went up a little bit. This seems strange. What is the topic? <laughs> what, are we, what are we talking about? And he did tell me before I was obligated to give an answer. So I had, a, I had the opportunity to say no. But I, I have spent a lot of time trying to dissect this quote. That's where this title comes from. And I trust that as we study the scriptures together, as we consider the focus of this message that I was given, that we can learn together and that we can be blessed. The title comes from a quote by Vance Havner. I'm not sure if I'm saying his last name right. He was a Baptist minister known for one-liners and memorable sayings. Died somewhere in the later 1900s, I believe. I didn't check that exactly. He said this, First there is a man, then a movement, then a machine, and then a monument. So I don't know where you determined that title goes in the message, but that's where we're going to endeavor to unpack. He's saying that it begins with a man, with a vision, with inspiration and, uh, and aggression and passion towards pursuing that vision. I think it was Brother Paul Miller who said earlier this week that a goal gives purpose and that purpose creates energy. That stuck with me. And that's what he's talking about, a vision, a passion. That man's vision then becomes a movement. We saw that last night as we looked into the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah had the vision. The movement happened when all the men began to work and they built the wall together. That's what happens when you have a vision of passion come upon men's hearts. Not every person is given to vision. So there are many who will quickly gravitate to a man's vision. Other hands and hearts move with that vision. Then it becomes a machine often. The vision becomes more and more organized, sometimes highly organized, to help sustain itself, to help achieve the initial priorities of the vision. And in that organization, many times there is a, a, a coolness that begins to come in. It becomes more and more mechanical, more and more cold, and it becomes a machine. And much of the passion and zeal that began with the vision is lost in the machine. And then, and that machine continues to function without the passion and zeal that was there with the man and the movement, it becomes nothing more than a monument. There's a statue of the man who had the great vision. Martin Luther King comes to mind. Uh, the Methodist Church, John Wesley, there was a sweeping movement that began there in the 1800s. It was so powerful and so moving that there was a time where it looked like England would embrace Methodism as their state religion, if I can say it. Today, Lots of references to John Wesley, but not so much passion in the Methodist Church. There are many other examples we could give. 
I believe the intention of the committee is to consider our own vision, possibly even the vision of the fellowship and its ministries. Are we leading in ways that have lasting value? Maybe there's someone here that is, has the goal of becoming a statue one day, that you want to have a, a statue of Dwayne Eby resurrected in Cumberland Valley. But I doubt it. I don't think there's anyone here that intends or hopes that they will have a statue of them. So the question we have is, are we building gold, silver, and precious stones, or, or will our efforts, the energy that God has given us, be wasted when we look back in 50 years? The focus of the message I was given is remaining true to the man so that the movement does not decline into lifeless monument. This morning, I'd like to consider, first of all, the man. And we're looking at the man, Jesus Christ, and you're going to have to forgive me. This morning, I'm going to refer to him numerous times as a man. But I trust you all understand he's not just a man, okay? Jesus Christ, the man. I want to consider several things about him, and I'm going to just ask you to allow your mind to go with me back and reflect on the things, the stories you know so familiarly from the scriptures. I'm not going to ask you to turn to many, maybe not any, scriptures. But I want you to think, first of all, about the man and his power. I don't know how often you really stop and reflect on the power that Jesus displayed while he was here on the earth. I want to begin with the account of the feeding of the 5,000. And it was at the end of the day, and Jesus had many people with him. They had come out to hear from him and to hear his message. And it was the end of the day, and the people were hungry. And the disciples said, Jesus, you've got to send these people back so they can get some food. And Jesus said, they need not depart. Give you them to eat. The disciples I can just see their wheels spinning. Do <laughs> you know how much money it would take? Where are we going to go to get enough bread to feed these people? This tells us there was 5,000 men plus women and children. And they, he said, and this has always fascinated me, the disciples come back to Jesus and they say, we have these five loaves and two fish. Why did they even do that? It was obvious that was not anywhere near enough, even to feed just the disciples. But they brought it to Jesus and Jesus says, he commanded the multitude to sit down. He took the five loaves and the two fishes and looked up to heaven and he blessed the, the food they had. And it says he gave to the disciples and the disciples to the multitudes. Now, I, my imagination tends to wander a little bit. And I, I'm trying to imagine how that would have been. When Jesus took those five loaves and gave them to 12 disciples, what happened? He just kept giving and there was always another loaf in his hand. And then when the disciples went and started handing it out to the 10,000 people or more that were sitting there in the grass, how did that go? Just more and more and more. And when they were done, they collected and there were 12 baskets full remaining of what Jesus has created out of nothing by his power. I think of the account when they were on the sea in Mark chapter 4, crossing the sea. It says there were a number of other boats with them. And a storm came up. It says there was a mighty wind. It doesn't say that there was rain, but I imagine it was raining as well. 
And the count has always fascinated me because I've been on the water several times. I know what it's like to see big waves on the water. And Jesus was sleeping in the back of the boat. And the disciples were desperately battling the storm to get across the Sea of Galilee. And finally, in desperation, they are feeling like they're about to die. So they wake Jesus up in the back of the boat and say, Master, don't you care that we're about to die? And Jesus stands up. He looks around. He says, peace, be still. Now think about what happened in that moment. It says there was a great calm. If you've ever been on rough water, you know that it doesn't just become calm in a second. Even if the wind stops. Nor does the wind just stop. Nor does the sky, I don't know this for certain, but in my imagination, the sky became instantly clear and blue. And it says there that the disciples feared exceedingly. And they said to each other, what is this great power that even this, the winds and the waves obey his words? I think of the time in John 11 when Lazarus, Jesus' friend, was sick. And Jesus told the disciples, this sickness is not to death, but for the glory of God. And he said, there's no rush, we don't need to go. They stayed and waited a while, and then they finally went, and when they got there, the disciples were sure he was too late, but God was just on time, like he always is. And Jesus came there, and he told them that, I am the resurrection and the life. Whosoever believeth in me shall never perish. He'll never die. I've often looked at that verse, and i thought about we we come to funerals and deaths with great sadness, but do you know the Bible says that those who believe in Jesus have life and they will never die. So you think about this. Will you ever die, Delbert? Will you ever die? Will you die? No. You know what the Bible says? To be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. Unless you, the person that would answer the question, will you ever die, unless that you is your shell that will just be left when you leave it, you will never die. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And they heard him say that. And Martha said, yes, Lord, I believe that in the resurrection all shall live. And Lazarus was dead. And he was laying in the tomb. And he said, where have you laid him? And they come to the tomb. And they stand there around the tomb. And Jesus is weeping because he loves Lazarus. And Lazarus is dead. And I'm not sure all of why Jesus was weeping. Because he knew that he would bring him to life. But he says, roll back the stone. And they say, no, no, Jesus, we can't roll back the stone. He's been in there four days already. He's going to stink. And then Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who's been dead for four days stands up and comes walking out in grave clothes. You know, I've often thought of that when I was at a funeral. It's usually about four days after we... We, after they die, that we bury them. Can you imagine what kind of a ruckus we would create if one someday stood up? The power, what power does it take to bring back someone who is dead to life again, to come walking out of the tomb and stand before everyone there and to be untangled from their grave clothes? 
I remember some years ago when we were approaching the Easter story of one of my younger children, we were talking about the resurrection. And I was explaining to them, you know, death and referring to small animals they had seen. We had rabbits at that time. They saw a little rabbit that is dead. We talked about, you know, dead is dead. There's nothing there. There's no life. And then I explained to them that Jesus was dead like that. And God brought him to life. Again, by the resurrection power, by the power of God. And one of my young sons looked at me and he said, how did he do it? How do you answer that question? How did he do it? Friends, by the power of God. That's how he did it. And I always, when I think of power, I think of the sun that is burning in 93 million miles away from us at 10,000 degrees. Do you know that it takes the gross domestic product of the United States for 7 million years to light the sun for one second? Where does that power come from? You know what the Bible says? That God breathed or spoke the word and there was stars. Not one, but thousands as we've heard, millions. The power of God. Consider the man, consider his power. I want you to consider his authority. There would be many accounts we could refer to, but in, the, in Matthew 8 we find him coming to the tombs there and meeting the two men from Gadarenes, I think it says. And he comes and he meets them and it says that they were so aggressive and powerful that people were afraid to go near them. And even as Jesus is approaching, the demons who are possessing them already saying, what are you doing with us, Jesus? Leave us alone. Why have you come to torment us? Jesus doesn't say anything. And it says that there was a herd of swine a good way off. And the devils inside these men said, "Can just put us into those swine. You know the only word in red in that account is go. And the demons left the man, went into the swine. The swine charged over the cliff. You know the story. Just go. The authority of Jesus. In chapter 9, we see, uh, you may want to turn to this one because it's a little more in depth here as we look at what he says. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is, sees a man brought to him sick of a palsy. He's brought in on a bed. He's laid before Jesus, laid at his feet. Par- palsy means he was paralyzed. Jesus said, Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins be forgiven thee. Well, immediately the Pharisees and the scribes and so the religious leaders around them said, Whoa, wait a minute. No man can forgive sins. What is Jesus saying? He's blaspheming. He just said that he forgave this man his sins. <coughs> Jesus, knowing their hearts. He says in verse 5, Whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk. You think about that. Which is easier? Paralyzed man, been paralyzed for a long time. Or to forgive sins. Which one's easier? You know, only God can do both of those things. And you know what Jesus said? And this is the part that I just love. He says, So that you know that the Son of Man has the authority, the power to forgive sins on the earth. He looks at this paralyzed man and he says, Rise up and walk. 
He didn't need therapy. He didn't need sessions. He didn't need anything. He got up, picked up his bed, and walked out. Why? So that we would know that Jesus has authority to forgive sins. I want you to consider his wisdom. Turn over to Matthew 22. There'd be many accounts we could look at to display the wisdom of Jesus. I've just picked a few. As we consider the man, when, God, when he had an interaction here with the Pharisees, they brought a coin to him, tempting him. They thought they can catch him because, you know, they were Roman in Roman, uh, under Roman authority, and yet the Jews taught that you shouldn't pay taxes or you didn't need to pay taxes. The question was, what thinkest thou, verse 17, is it lawful to give tribute or taxes unto Caesar or not? And Jesus answers, why tempt ye me, you hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. Then he takes the coin and he holds it up and says unto them in verse 20, whose is this image and superscription? The coin, probably similar to ours, bore the image of Caesar and an inscription about Caesar. And they said, it's Caesar's. Then said he unto them, here's the wisdom, render therefore unto Caesar's the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. You know what he's saying? Take that logic backwards. He says, the things that are God's give to God. Who bears the image? of God and the inscription of God. Do you? When was the last time you looked in the mirror? What did you see? The image of God. You bear the image of God. And what is Jesus saying in his wisdom? He's saying, give to the world the world's kingdom and give to God the things that belong to God. Every person living, every person breathing bears the image of Almighty God and they belong to God. The wisdom of Jesus in one single sentence. Later in this chapter, we see him interacting again with the Pharisees and they ask him, which is the greatest commandment in verse 36? And they had about 616 laws, give or take, maybe one or two is what I understand. By the way, their Pharisees were a group that had gotten a little heavy on the machine, if I may say that in my title. Jesus says to them, here's the, here's the commandments. This is the greatest one. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And here is Jesus' wisdom again. He's not saying that none of the other commands matter. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying you do these two things and you will fulfill all the law and the prophets. Jesus didn't have any trouble figuring out which of the 616 laws were most important. He understood that there was only two. And if you got those right, everything else would take care of itself. Consider his wisdom. Consider his humility. I've often been just pondered and wondered at the account in John 13 where Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. As he goes around that circle, I just picture him coming to Judas. Doing something that no rabbi, if I may, no man of his stature, of his authority, his power, his glory, should ever be doing. He was washing feet. Only the lowest of the servants washed the feet. 
But he's not only washing feet. He's washing the feet of the man that he knows is about to betray him into the hands of evil men. I couldn't see it with my eyes, but in my mind's eye, I see it. And I see a, a glorious king bowing before a man that he created, who bore his image, who he knew was about to betray him. And he had to let him betray him because Judas had the power of choice. He washed the disciples' feet. He washed Peter's feet, who he knew would deny him three times. He washed all of their feet, who he knew would all desert him in the next coming hours. His humility. I thought about Gethsemane. Jesus wrestling with the cross that he was about to face and bear. Begging the Father to find a different way to bring salvation to humanity. And he comes to the place where he says in humility, Not my will, but thine be done. I thought about his time on the cross. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but for you or I, to die for Christ in that way, we would need to be strong enough to come to the place where we would refuse to recant, okay? But there would come a moment then where we would be beyond our will, if you know what I mean. We would be held by the nails. We would be held by the soldiers. We would be captive to the decision we had made. Jesus was never captive on the cross. Never. And do you ever stop and think about the complete, total surrender and humility that he displayed, not going on to the cross, but staying on the cross in the desperate pain and separation from his Father, however that all was. It says that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient unto the death of the cross. That doesn't mean he surrendered himself to be nailed to the cross. He surrendered himself second by second by second through the agony and torture of that death. Because at any moment, he could have called 10,000 angels. And in fact, they were taunting him, if you're the Christ, come down from the cross. You know how easy it would have been for Jesus to come down from the cross? His humility. We're coming into the Christmas season. I've often thought about, or tried to think about, what is it like to step from the Trinity, the creator of the world that created, the, what was it, 93 billion miles across a universe? No, light years. That's a little different, isn't it? I find this fascinating. They tell us today that there are the same amount of stars in the heavens. Scientists, secular scientists tell us this. There's the same amount of stars in the heavens as there are grains of sand on the earth. Do you know that? I find that incredibly fascinating because remember what God told Abraham about his seed? You're going to be, your seed will be as the sands of the seashore and as the stars of the heavens. For the last, whatever there is, 4,000 years almost in between there, everyone who ever read that said those are not comparables. Those are crazy things. They used to think there was about 2,000 stars. Right up into the 1800s, they believed there was 2,000 stars. Today, Secular scientists are saying those two things that God equated a long, long time ago are the same. Now, I dare you to take your cup out to the beach sometime and start counting grains of sand. I'm told, I didn't try this, but you get about five million in a cupful. You count every grain of sand on the earth that's comparable to the stars of the heavens. And the man who created those stars came in a babe in a manger and allowed 
he humbled himself? That's kind of an understatement. I want you to consider his compassion. In Matthew 8, he meets a leper. And there might be many different ways you would illustrate Jesus' compassion, but this has always been an account that really touches me. There's a leper comes to Jesus and bows down in front of him and says, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. How many of you have ever met a leper in real time? I don't see a single hand. I thought I might see some here. I have never met a leper. But leprosy, I'm told, is an awful disease that deforms people. There's rotting flesh on people. They're terrible, uh, despicable human beings, if I can say that, from a flesh point of view. And they get this lion-like face. They are deformed and disfigured. And they get this deep, raspy voice. And they, they stink. They look awful. They smell awful. Everything about them is awful. And this man comes before Jesus and kneels down before him and says, Lord, if thou wilt, you can make me clean. And everything in our flesh would revolt from that person. And look at what it says. Jesus put forth his hand and touched him. Probably hadn't been touched in years. The compassion of Jesus Christ. The man. I think of the man on the cross beside Jesus as he was going through his torments. One reviled him, made fun of him. One said, we deserve to be here, but this man has done nothing wrong. And Jesus in his love and compassion, even in that torture of the moment, says... Today you're going to be with me in paradise. (coughs) The most powerful illustration to me of Jesus' compassion is also from the cross. When Jesus looks at the men who condemned him, the men who nailed him to the cross, the men who put him there on the cross, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And Jesus meant it. I want us now to consider the movement. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He said, but ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. (coughs) Excuse me. He said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. You see, the man went away. But he returned to indwell the believer, the Christian. Jesus said, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we, Jesus and the Father, will come unto him and make our abode with him. That abode, that's in John 14, by the way, is the same word that is in John 14, too, where it talks about the mansions that are in heaven. Right, Dennis? I don't know where Dennis is, but I learned that here at Maranatha Bible School in the teacher's study in a devotional that he shared. Thank you, brother. Jesus Christ came back in the presence of the Spirit to indwell the believer, and he didn't 
Jesus didn't start a movement, friends. It's not like the quote in this sense. Jesus didn't start a movement. Jesus is the movement because He came back and He is indwelling the believer. And He says in John 15, Without Me you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. With the power of Jesus Christ, all things are possible, right? That's what the Bible says. I want to consider for a moment the church now, the movement. I want to think about her message. I've got to go quickly here. I want to think about the message of the church, the message of salvation. Jesus, God, is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And Jesus intends to use the church as the only way that he's using today to get that message out. The message of salvation. The message that a, a broken, sinful, terrible, wretched human being can be brought in a place of justification and reconciliation to a perfect, holy God. As an unbelievable message. A powerful message. It's the message of the church. It's the, pre- the message of broken surrender, that repentance and continual cross-bearing, that by those things we can be freed from the power of self and the world and the devil and we can live a victorious Christian life. Are we still preaching that message? Do we still preach the cross? Do we still preach that it requires a daily death to self in order to experience the power of God? I think about the church's goals, her goals. I think of the goals that we find in John 17 from Jesus' prayer. He desperately prays that they would be unified, that they would be one as the Father and I are one. He wanted to see unity in the church. He prays for their sanctification. He wanted them to be cleansed and set apart and different from the world. I think of the goals that we see in Acts chapter 2 where it says that the apostles, they continued in the apostles' doctrine. There was purity in doctrine. There was fellowship. There was communion. And there was prayer. These are the goals of the church. I think of the the goals given in Ephesians 4. I see two of them there in Ephesians 4. It says, the perfecting of the saints and the work of the ministry. The perfecting of the saints is the internal work of the church of Christ that we are making every disciple perfect in the presence of God. Not that they're without failure, not because they can't never can fall. That's not what it means. But it means that they will be fully equipped. In other words, they will know how to respond to every situation in their life that they will face to the glory of God. That they will respond in a Christ-like way. It's our responsibility as a church to teach our people how to do that. Are we doing it? Are we teaching our young people how to live a pure life? (coughs) Excuse me. In this perverse generation. The second goal listed there is the work of reconciliation. The work of the ministry, it says. If you study that through, you'll find it is the work, the ministry of reconciliation. Bringing people inside and outside the church to a place of reconciliation with a holy God. I believe there's significance to the order of those two priorities given there in Ephesians 5. And we get running out there trying to win the people with the message of reconciliation. But there's not been any perfecting happen in the saint. It's not going to make any sense to anyone. You know why? Because they look at us and they hear us talk about a Jesus, a holy Jesus, a powerful Jesus, one with authority, one with humility, one with forgiveness, one with love. And they look at us and they say, I don't see any of those things. And you already have Jesus. I don't believe it. But if someone who has already experienced the power of holy living in their life 
that is displaying that power of holy living now presents the gospel to Jesus Christ, of Jesus Christ, they say, yes, that makes sense. doesn't mean everyone believes. But at least there's not a contradiction. In our, in our day, there's a mix-up of those two priorities in many churches today. I want you to think about her love, the church, the love of Christ flowing through the church for the downcast, for the needy. Jesus says, how will he know the sheep? He says, I was a hunger and you gave me meat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came unto me. He says, what is pure religion and undefiled before God and the fatherless? Father is this, sorry, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. The downcast of society should be impacted by the church. That is one of her love flowing out to those around her. It is also a love for her own, a love of brotherhood. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples. How are we going to show the world the power of the man, the love of the man, if we don't have it in our own churches? And friends, it is a tremendous blessing to be part of the body of Christ, to experience the relationships, the joy and fellowship that we have in this room, for example. Some of my dearest friends on the earth are sitting in this room. Why? Because they are co-laborers together. We're part of the body of Christ. We are working together for His goals. I want you to think about her purity. The church, the bride of Christ. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so also we shall walk in newness of life. Jesus Christ, the presence of His Spirit indwelling us, changes a person. There's a commitment of the bride to purity, to keep her unspotted from the world. That is her purity. I want you to think of her glory. The Bible tells us that they will see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. Where is the glory in the church? Where is it? It's in the individual believer who is living out the power of the Word of God. And I look around me and I see that happening and I'm so thankful and grateful I get to serve in the church of Jesus Christ in the shadows of men who have gone on before the great cloud of witnesses and some of them sitting here. I look over this audience, I see men who have had tremendous impact on my personal life, on my understanding of Scripture and on who I am today. I think of the brethren I have back home in our congregation and opportunities to serve for them and with them. I think of a couple sisters back home that just illustrate to me the power of God in a life. I can think of one lady who is facing tremendous health challenges right now. She's hardly able to walk. Her muscles are breaking down. She can, her speech is now becoming slurred. Her, father, her husband sorry, is schizophrenia. She has gone through a lot. She's lost a couple children, and yet she continues to smile day after day for God's glory because why? Because Jesus is living in her. That's why. I think of another older sister that I, that I see every Sunday morning. She's always smiling, but she can hardly walk. She needs a walker to move. She's, I don't know, in her 80s now probably. Every single time I see her, she's smiling. I've never heard her complain about anything. It, she's not speaking in tongues or casting out demons or working miracles, but friends, she's showing me the power, the glory of the church. Friends, this is the movement. The man living in us by the power of the Spirit. I want to consider the machine. 
machine definition from the dictionary is an artificial work, simple or complicated, that serves to apply or regulate moving power or to produce motion so as to save time or force. Now, I don't know if you can connect a machine very well to what the church is doing. That word seems kind of hard for me to fit, at first at least. Let me give you an example. When we recognize the need of visitation for Sini as an example, what happened? We established a Actually, it was already established, but we gave the Mission Extension Committee the task of organizing that visitation. Now, if I can go back to the machine definition, it could have been necessary to regulate moving power. In other words, there could have been so many churches all trying to go to Sini at once that we just had to have some mechanism to regulate that there be some order in when they get there. Is that what it was? Or... It says there it can be to produce motion. Maybe that's what it was. We needed to remind someone every quarter that, hey, there's that group up there in Sini that could use a visit. It's your turn. That's what we did, right? That's the machine. The machine is the committees, the organization, the schedules, the practice part of our statement of faith and practice. And there's examples of this in the scripture. In Acts chapter 6, when the widows were neglected, what did they do? They ordained men because they said it's not fit for us that we should just tend to tables. We want to give ourselves to preaching the word and to prayer. So the machine went to work and they organized and they gave these men, seven men full of the Holy Spirit, the responsibility to care for these widows, that they wouldn't be neglected. I've always found it fascinating. In the next chapter, one of them is stoned and a few chapters later, one of them is running after a a chariot. I don't know how when they had time to take care of the widows, but it seems like the problem went away. In Acts 15, we have the same thing again. We have the machine coming into focus. Why? Because there was a problem of many people who were Jewish believers who were coming to Christ and insisting that there had to be circumcision, there had to be keeping of the law of Moses. And what did they do? They got all the leaders together in Jerusalem and they had a powwow, a serious debate about whether or not this needed to be part of the church. And in the end, they decided there's four things we're going to require of all churches. And they send those out. And they put them to practice, and it says the church flourished. Machine. I think we all understand that this is necessary, that organization and structure and discipline and so on are a necessary part of the movement, the church of Jesus Christ. Now I want to consider the monument. Before I do, I want to be absolutely clear here. Jesus Christ will never be a monument. Okay? Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and He always will be, no matter what Midwest Fellowship does, no matter what Maranatha Bible School does, no matter what Deeper Life Ministries does, or anyone else in this room does, Jesus Christ will still be Lord of lords. He will never degrade, if I can say it that way, to a monument. Nor will the church ever become a monument. The church of Jesus Christ will live on. Jesus Christ will have a bride. Whether or not we are a part of it, that is the only thing in question. Jesus Christ will never be a monument. The movement, the church, will never be a monument. But I want you to think about what a monument is. A couple things. First of all, it's lifeless. There's absolutely no movement in a monument. Secondly, it's all the same. 
There's absolute uniformity in the monument. And thirdly, it's cold, heartless, lacking of any passion, any drive, any desire. That's what a monument is. Now, is it possible? Can we become nothing but a monument? It seems incredulous almost to think about. God sent his son, Jesus, the man we just talked about, with all his power and authority and glory and majesty and all that he is, to come and die on the cross so that we could be free from our sins. And then he came back in the presence of the Holy Spirit to indwell us. It seems almost impossible. How could it ever happen that we would become nothing but a monument? He's given to us His Spirit. He's filled us with His grace. The Bible tells us that we are every man received the gift. All of you who received the gift of the grace of God and we're all called to be stewards of that grace of God. But friends, I would tell you today that it is possible for us, not Jesus, not the movement, but for us to become a monument. I want to think back to this thing of the machine. And I believe that it's in this place where we lose out, in the mechanism. You see, in the man and the movement is great energy and passion and warmth. I saw many of your eyes, just like my eyes, tearing up when we think about what Jesus has done, who Jesus is, what the church is. I love thy kingdom, Lord. There is great passion. But in the machinery, there can be a coolness. It's just rather cold sometimes. For example, in our church, in our home congregation, the visitation of the elderly, we recognize it as an important thing. Elderly often feel neglected, especially those that can't get out anymore or are stuck in a nursing home somewhere. And we've tried numerous times to put the machine into practice, you know, get it busy, make a schedule that everyone is going to take a turn to go visit the elderly. Well, how effective is that? You know what happens? Every time it falls apart. Why? Because it's the machine. It's the machine trying to move this. I would say it this way, that when the machine is needed, it reveals a weakness in connection to the man and the movement. I understand. I'm not saying that there's no connection. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that there's no place for the machine. But I want you to understand this morning... Is it still morning? Almost. That is, if we need the machine to maintain what we're doing, it reveals a weakness in our connection to the man and the movements. If you think back to what happened in Acts 6, and maybe I'm going too far with this, there was a need of the widows. Not all the widows, though. You remember which widows it was? Just the Greek widows. Why was that? There wasn't enough people in the church to meet the needs of the Greek widows? Is that why it was? No, there was thousands in the church already. You know why it was? I think it was because there was a little prejudice, for one. And secondly, there was a neglect. Did Jesus care about the widows? Did the man, the movement, have concern for the widows? Yes. But you know what had to happen? The machine had to step in and meet the need because of the weakness. I think you could say the same thing about what happened in Acts 15. I want you to think about our standards in our churches. And friends, I have to be careful how I say this because I don't want to come across in any way that I'm suggesting that we don't need standards in our churches. And if you know me at all, you know that's not true. But I'm going to say further 
that if we need our standards to tell a young lady, for example, that her clothes are too tight, if we need our standards to keep our young men's haircuts in line, if we need our standards to do all those things, you know what it reveals? A weakness in the connection to the man and the movement. Because if you understand who Jesus Christ is and what his priorities are in the world, you don't have to understand a written church document about modesty. Okay? Are you with me? Does that make sense? I want to just think about a few other things here. I, again, I don't want to find fault because I've said the same thing. But in the business meeting, when we were talking about the expansion of Maranatha Bible School and the 175,000 that is needed, someone made the comment that we should just send bills to all the churches. I did the math. It would be about $5,500 per church. You know, we could do that. You know what that is? That's a machine. You know how much more powerful it is if God's people see the need, the priority, and out of free will and out of desire and love for the movement of the church and the movement of the Bible school, reach into their back pockets and dig out some money and give it. You know how much more powerful that is? Again, I'm not saying it would be wrong to send bills. I'm just saying, understand that when we need to implement the machine, it indicates a weakness. We could also... Maybe not at this level, but at least in our local church levels, we could require that every young person between the age of 16 and 20 at some point must spend at least one year, one term, six weeks, at Maranatha Bible School. We could do that. I don't know that there'd be anything wrong with that, really. It would be good for them, wouldn't it? It'd be good if a lot more of them came. We might have to come up with a different mechanism to manage them here, Dennis. I agree with what you said this morning. I've been principal here, so I know how that goes. But it'd be good for them. But you know how much more powerful it is if a young person has a desire to learn more about the Word of God and to grow spiritually and voluntarily comes to Maranatha Bible School. You see the difference? One is the passion that comes from connection to the man in the movement. The other is the machine. Friends, the more we lean on the machine, the greater the likelihood of a monument. That's what I want to say. I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. We have a church here. The church of Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 1. Actually, verse 2. It says, I know thy works, thy labor, thy patience, how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them, which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, for my name's sake has labored, excuse me, and has not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. And he goes on to say that they need to repent and remember where they've fallen from. If you look at verses 2 and 3, this church was still doing a lot of things. And I would propose to you today that this church's machine was still working very well. Okay? Might even have fit in here pretty well. I don't want to go too far with that, but think about it. Jesus said, I've got something against you. This machine, functioning effectively, without the love for Jesus Christ, is in a desperate need of repentance. If we're going to focus and maintain, and only maintain, and we're going to keep this machine bubbling and chugging along over here, we're going to become a monument, because this church was on its way to becoming a monument. And I think history actually reveals that that's exactly what happened in the church of Ephesus. 
Was the machine functioning? Yes, it was. It was on its way, though, to becoming a monument because the machine had lost connection to the love for the man. I want to give you three points quickly, how to avoid that we become a monument. And I I hope I've been clear enough now that separation happens when we move away from the man and the movement. The man and the movement never going to become a monument. But we can drift away, and I'm suggesting it happens in the machine phase where we become nothing but a monument. Now, how do we avoid it? None of us want to be a monument. And this is going to seem pretty simple to you, but I believe it's still absolutely true. We see here in Revelation 2, the first thing, we must love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. If what we're doing, brethren, no matter how good it's doing, what we're doing is, if we're not motivated by a love for Jesus Christ, then it's going to ultimately be meaningless. We must... We must be motivated. Everything we do must be motivated by the love we have for the man that we talked about earlier. If it isn't that way, then we're on our way to becoming a monument. Secondly, we must have a strong emphasis on the Word. You see, the only authority that we have is the Word of God. And much could be said about this, and I don't have time, but the Word of God, the power of God, the the instructions from God, the fellowship with Jesus Christ can't be any closer than it is when I'm holding my Bible. Because He is the Word. We must teach the Word, preach the Word, instruct in the Word, stand for the Word. And it doesn't matter if it's popular in society or if it isn't. It doesn't matter if psychology tells it it's wrong or if it doesn't. It doesn't matter if the science tells it it's wrong or it doesn't. This is the Word of God. This is what it says. This is where we stand. But you know that all the knowledge in the Word, all the understanding of the Word, is absolutely meaningless without a love for the man. The Bible tells us become a tinkling symbol. And I appreciated what was said earlier. I can't remember exactly how it was said, but the idea that we've become more focused on knowledge than about relationship with Christ. And I've said it a little differently, but same idea. There's never been a generation that would do better on SAT tests, if you will. If we just did general testing across our fellowship in understanding biblical doctrines and understanding intellectually. If you gave them a Bible test is what I'm saying. Every 20-year-old would get a test. If you compared the results of that test to 50 years ago, what 20-year-olds would have known about the Scriptures, I feel strongly that we would do better today on the tests. Same for 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, whatever you like. But you know what we have less of? A lot less of holy living. Why is that? The Bible speaks of a deception of knowing that makes us feel like we are doing. Just because I know something doesn't mean I'm doing it. And if we're not doing it, the knowing is rather irrelevant. So the third point, and what I believe is maybe the hardest to maintain, is the practicing of the Word. The practicing, the daily living out of the doctrines and teachings of Jesus Christ, the man who began began the movement. If we're not living out... You know, we can say all we want that non-resistance is something we believe, but if we're not living out in shoe leather, in daily living, non-resistance, not only in wartime, but in peace times, then it doesn't mean anything. Same with non-conformity. If we, don't, we can say all we want how the church is going to be separate and it needs to be pure and la-da-da-da-da, but we're drinking at the cisterns of the, well, of the world, it doesn't mean a thing. We need to be practicing the Word of God. 
And I would go a little further here yet, and I would say that in this last part, and there, again, a lot should be said here, but this practicing of the Word, in that is where we must find our identity, and in that is where we must find the glue that holds us together in a fellowship. If we don't, we got nothing. Because I tell you that there is a lot of churches that would say they love Jesus, and there's a lot of churches that say they preach the Word of God. But how many are there that are practicing the Word of God? So how does all of this that I've shared connect to proactive and intentional leadership? I'd like to go to John chapter 3 in closing. It's a scary thing to say because I should get done soon now, right? John chapter 3, there's a few verses here that I've never really paid much attention to in my Bible in the past. But I think it ties into this subject and into leadership. In chapter 3, verse 26, they're coming to John the Baptist. And they said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, that's Jesus, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizer, then all men come to him. Do you hear what they're saying? John, this movement you started, it's falling apart. They're all going over there to Jesus. John says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. And verse 29, I'd like to focus on for a moment. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. Okay, do you see who that's talking about? Jesus Christ has the movement. The bride belongs to Jesus Christ. That's clear in John's mind. He goes on to say, But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. What are your goals for leadership? What are your purposes? What are your priorities for leadership? John's saying, that I had the privilege of serving, standing near the bridegroom. And I had the privilege of assisting, if I can put it in my own language and in language for us today, helping the bride to be pure and get to the place where there's going to be a wedding. And if I had that privilege of being a part of that, that work, then I, my joy is fulfilled. And John says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Friends, you know why many people, many movements move to a monument? It's because the movement gets connected to a man, an earthly man. goes on to talk about the earthly. The earthly come speaketh of the earth. Verse 31. But he that cometh from heaven is above all. When a movement is connected to a man, earthly man, it will ultimately move away from the man, Jesus Christ, and it will end up as a monument. Now, is it possible that Midwest Fellowship is too heavily in the machine stage and headed towards a monument? That's a dangerous question for me to ask and an even more dangerous one for me to answer. But I want you to think about this. I think if I understood right, there's somewhere around 34 churches represented in Midwest Fellowship now. About 2,500 members 
If we looked at what was accomplished for the kingdom of God in the last year, is it proportionate or appropriate for what should be expected for 2,500 people who have the power of the Almighty God? I'm not going to say any more about that, but I just had to think about my own congregation back home, the congregation where I serve, lest I get misunderstood. We have about 180 members there. And I had to think about the same question. Is what has been accomplished for the kingdom of God appropriate for 180 people who are filled with El Shaddai, the power of Almighty God? Is it appropriate? If, if I made a list of everything that has been accomplished for Jesus Christ and His kingdom, the movement, in the last year, would the things on that list be appropriate for what would be expected of 180 disciples who are following Jesus Christ and who have the priority of the movement? And I have a couple brethren here from my home ministry that will straighten me out later if I'm out of line in saying this. But my answer is no. It's not. And I'm left with the questions, why? I'm going to go a little further. We are living in a time, I believe, at least I can say this about Christview, where there are a number of young men there who have a passion, who have a desire to see something happening. And you know what's happening? Some of these men are being consumed, if I can say it in those terms, by movements that are not biblical, that are moving outside of the church. They always develop in a vacuum of what is holy, godly living within the church. We have other men who maybe are not doing that, but are being consumed in the business world. What am I doing now? Correct me if I... What did you say, Dennis? Take the seeds and spit out the shells? It wouldn't take a whole lot of effort, hear me right here, to, to, to start a movement, okay? There's ambition there. There's desire to see passion and energy there. All it takes is a little push and direction. And friends, this is the challenge for me about intentional leadership and about what we're looking at of being proactive in leadership. If their movement towards doing something positive, doing something with excitement and energy, if their movement is because of Glenn, okay, and if their connection to that movement is Glenn, it'll die in 50 years or less. It'll die as soon as Glenn dies, okay? As soon as Glenn's energy dies, it'll die. But if my influence, my movement, whatever I'm doing can focus them into moving actively for the man and the movement, that is intentional, proactive leadership. I don't need to be part of it. It doesn't need me to go on. It's connected to the man. And whenever I serve here at Maranatha Bible School, I always pray and I tell students sometimes, I don't want you to go home talking about what you learned from Glenn. That's baloney. It's useless. If you go home saying what you learned from God, from your time here in, in His Word, and you've been changed because of that, then that can be powerful and useful. If there's no... If our leadership stops the movement here, if I can say it that way, at us, and it's connected to us, it's going to become a monument. And if it is not, if it doesn't connect us to the power of the, the man, 
and the movement, then it's going to die out. And uh, where are we at in the fellowship? I, I just I think about that, and I was really struck as our brother shared in the bishops' meeting. Ray Sham shared a list of men who he remembers being here. And I asked him for that list because it struck me as I was sitting there listening to the list. About five of the twelve that he listed, I don't think I've ever met. I don't recall ever meeting. Another group of them that I might I know I've met, but I've never had any kind of meaningful conversation with them. I might have said hello. And then there's a smaller group yet of those ones that Ray remembers as the original ones that I actually had meaningful conversations with. But I don't remember ever, with that list of men you shared, having any conversations that were specifically vision-oriented or goal-oriented or purpose-oriented in the fellowship. And that can be because I just forget, understand that. What is my point? My point is that in every generation, we must grab a hold of a vision that connects us to the man and the movement. We can't carry on on Homer Miller and Leighton Martin's vision for the Bible school or the Midwest Fellowship. We can appreciate what they've done. We have learned much from them. We have gained much because of what they did. But there is nothing there anymore for my generation as far as the movement and moving it forward, okay? I thought about this. I wonder how many would be in the same shoes. I was ordained in 2005. How many of you were ordained since 2005 in this room? Put your hands up a little higher so I can see them better. Okay, how many of you were ordained before 2005? So it's still more of you that were ordained before 2005 than since. But it's not many more anymore. You see what's happening? It's transitioning. It's going to continue transitioning. And brethren, those of you who are had your hands up last, the, the impetus is mostly on you, brethren. Can I say it that way? First of all, is your vision connected to the man in the movement the way it ought to be? And secondly, are you communicating what that vision is so that we can grab a hold of it, the next generation, and move it forward, not for our glory or because of us, but so that the ones behind us can grab a hold of it? If we don't pass on the vision and get the people focused on the man and the movement, then we will become a meaningless monument sometime in the future. You see, when the movement and the man is in focus, then my leadership is simply a transitional goal. And when my time is up, I can let go. But if it's my mission and it's my focus, i got to make sure everybody does it just right. And I just can't let go because no one else is ever going to do it just right. Brethren, I need to quit. There will be more things that could be said. Maybe too many have been said. May our efforts be passionate and pure for the man who is the movement. God bless you.